Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath podcast on YouTube. So today I'm going to continue with Colleen because, you know, when you go back to the, the basic research, when you go back to the the studies that really changed the perspective of all subsequent studies after that. In other words, everybody started looking at something different. And I told you about how Dr. Yertles uh, agouti mice, when he gave them the methylating factors, the yellow obese cancer prone mice suddenly became healthy for subsequent generations, subsequent generations. And so everybody redid that. And it was an easy experiment to do, but not to think about, you might, he had to think about this thing. It's pretty easy to do. It wasn't real expensive. And yet, wow, Look what happened. And then he redid it eight years later, uh, throwing in a toxin and then a group with methyl donors. And then he, you know, basically made them not suffer the consequences of the toxin, the B, a BPH, bisphenol A, that comes from plastics. And then he did a subsequent one after that of even soy. So all that was interesting. So that's was a paradigm shift. It, not so much in how he did this, but that suddenly it it uh, consolidated all that we knew in terms of, gosh, epigenetics, um, methyl donors, and so on and so forth. So I have to break for a second because this whole idea of epigenetics started back in the 40s with what they call the Dutch hunger uh, famine, which is the end of World War II. And they were, I did podcasts on this. I've also done videos on this in which they were boxed in and they starved for six months in Greater Amsterdam. And a lot of people died, a lot of people got sick, and a lot of uh, those that were born there had consequences for the rest of their life. And it was interesting, they compared that particular set of people's response to starvation, as opposed to the siege of Stalingrad, which was the other side of World War II in Russia, obviously. And what happened to them and their outcome is they basically had different long-term outcomes in subsequent generations. So that's where epigenetics began, saying, hey, wait a minute, um, the subsequent generations weren't starving and look what happened to them. So something came in and mucked up the genes, right? Something came in and turned on some genes and turned off other genes. And there was actually in 1942, I can't think of that man's name, came up with the reference of epigenetics. So in, call it 2000, it was really 2003, when Randy, Dr. Randy uh, Yertle, Yerty at Duke did this experiment, 2003, and then eight years later, and then so it's like, 
wow, people saw that it wasn't just a, isn't that interesting, these two starvation areas, um, you know, and these people with different outcome. He brought it down front and center. It says it can happen in one generation. In one generation, it can happen. So people started to stand up and take it pretty seriously. So with that, pretty much concurrent lockstep, I think a, a little bit later over at the University of North Carolina, 10 feet away, <laughs> right? 10 miles away maybe, um, there was Dr. Seisel, Dr. Stephen Seisel. And so he was, you know, figuring out about choline because he started up at MIT as a PhD MD at, and, and working in a lab that was about choline and decided, you know, looked into various things about choline. Choline had not been uh, declared a nutrient yet, even though there was a lot of research going back 150 years with a poundage, many, 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 many studies. Uh, even back to the same people who worked on the isolation of insulin, Best, and um, I can't think of the other person, and Banting and Best up at University of Toronto. And so it was a rich amount of information for him to dig into. And now he's getting into women uh, in terms of prenatal needs and um, in pre-core blood on babies that were born. And all this has become pretty fascinating. But still, in the late 90s, it wasn't declared a nutrient. So then it became a, a nutrient. Then the next question was, well, how much of this stuff are you supposed to have? And where do you get it? And where is it? So um, it continued from there. So finally, in 2006 and seven, when he did this study that I've talked about a little bit, he took men and postmenopausal women and premenopausal women, gave them the same amount of, of choline on a per body weight basis, and then he dropped them all down to be deficient in choline, and then he gradually brought them up over time, he found they didn't respond the same. They didn't respond the same. Postmenopausal women and men, for the most part, were the, responded the same, with some exceptions. We'll get into that. And so they started at this level level, you know, well, how much do they need and what's going to do and so on. So they had a rough idea, uh, had been established what they call adequate intake. Adequate intake simply means if you take this, you're not going to be deficient. It's not your ideal amount. It's not the too much, what they call the upper... Uh, upper tolerable limit. Um, what they've come up with now is that men need 550 milligrams per day, but even that is insufficient for, and even in those studies in 2006 and 7, it showed that it was insufficient for 20% of the men in the study still at that upper level of 550 per body weight didn't get enough. And so consequently, there was suffering dysfunction. It was mostly skeletal mus muscle dysfunction, which is interesting. They couldn't measure, uh, in any of them, they couldn't men measure any sort of mental or brain dysfunction. That, was, that would have been, pet that was a little more sophisticated, but that would have been interesting, right? My guess is those who suffered muscle dysfunction would, con would concurrently suffer brain, because acetylcholine is the driver for muscle and it's the driver for brain. But... What we know is that. And so women tended to, um, postmenopausal women, when they became deficient, they all got deficient, remember, that they tended to get fatty liver, not muscle dysfunction, but fatty liver. So how they fatty liver, they measured that by MRIs. So, okay, that's what women have. And there was one that had 
liver dysfunction, but there's only one in the whole group that had liver dysfunction. So they were doing blood work and MRIs and, you know, really fine-tuning it. And anybody who was in dysfunction was immediately addressed and they brought them back up to normal. But one of the things that's not talked about and that came up in that study of 2006 and 7 with Dr. Um, Zeisel was that all, 100%, everybody who was in the study had elevated uric acid. Elevated uric acid. I've talked a lot about uric acid in previous uh, videos, certainly, and some podcasts, but that was never mentioned. Nobody talks about choline deficiency as being a primary cause for choline, for uric acid elevation. So 100% of the people had elevated uric acid, and guess what? Even when the study was done, nobody came back to their pre-study levels, to their normal levels. It took a number of weeks, if not months, for some to come back to normal. Now you go, well, that's really interesting. That's kind of what they say, a fly in the face of this conclusion, you know, that everybody wants a simple answer that, oh, elevated uric acid is X. Um, and this is what you need to do. It's a little more complicated, but there are some big things that need to be addressed, and they are probably the causes. So we've talked about elevated uric acid as being purine consumption, perhaps being dehydrated to an extent, um, and we went through all of that. But now there's books out saying, no, uh, uric acid, uric acid elevation is due to fructose and glucose. You know, you, you have a diet, you have insulin resistance. That's a component. It's clearly a category, but it's not the main component. Here you had 100%, 100%. It wasn't even pre-menopausal, post-menopausal, men, women, nothing. It was 100% everybody. When they depleted their choline, they got elevated uric acid. That is a big deal especially when I'm encouraging everybody to get uric acid meters and to measure their uric acid because it does help and it is strongly correlated with, with obesity and diabetes and uh, insulin resistance. Clearly, that's the case. But here we go. I just showed you what this is. Well, the tie-in and a little bit of a tangent here is that choline deficiency is associated with obesity and diabetes and so on and so forth. Type 2 diabetes, I should say. Yeah, that's always been the case. One of the questions and why I keep plodding along on all these different things and looking kind of for the minutia and the things that have the stones that haven't been turned over, the conclusions that haven't been revealed, and yet they were studied a long time ago, long time ago being 2006 and seven, right? Um, that it's important to know the big reasons and to be able to address the big reasons. But the biggest issues that we have culturally really come down to two. And two major categories, and from there everything comes. And it's why the hellaciously high rate of obesity and type 2 diabetes, category one, and the other is why, and it, they're going up and up and up. It's not like it's a straight line. It's the rate is going up. So it, the rate is going up over time. So we're not just a trajectory where we can put a ruler to and say, yeah, this is where it's going to be. The angle is changing. The angle is also changing for the rate of increase of chronic diseases, specifically dementia and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's being a subset of dementia. Why are they almost lockstep with diabetes and obesity 
in the United States, I'll speak for that, but it's really worldwide and it kind of spreads out to the degree that they have a Western diet. So you go, all right, it's diet associated. No, no, no doubt it's diet associated. And no doubt we can say things that's due to the processed foods and the undernutrition of it. Absolutely, all those are true, but those aren't good enough answers for me. I, I just find that's uh, uh, it's just a non-conversation. I would walk away if somebody said that, and here, and, and sound bright and intelligent. No, it's not that insightful for me. Sorry, don't mean to offend you. But now we're finding out that, wait a minute, stop the presses, as they say. Back to elevated uric acid is because of choline deficiency. Choline deficiency. And we know that elevated uric acid, I've talked about videos and other podcasts, is associated with increasing rates of dementia, is associated with insulin resistance. I just said that. Is associated with, it could be the commonality, and I hate to say there's one thing, there's nothing in life is just one thing, so it's not just one thing, but this is a big issue that hasn't been discussed. Hasn't been discussed. So that uric acid is, yes, about insulin resistance, is, yes, about dementia, but could it be so simple that it, yes, is also about choline deficiency? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So now we have to say, well, how did we get here to choline deficiency? And please don't go, yeah, it's the processed food and the hypo, the undernutrition. Got that? Push that (laughs) to the side. We're not going there. That's not what um, I want to talk about. But what happens is if you give choline, you reverse these things. So I'm not saying you can reverse type 2 diabetes and obesity by giving them choline only, or you can reverse, but it, it might well be. Nobody's done that yet. Nobody's done that. Nobody's done that obvious thing. They go, no, 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 no. Do keto. Do keto. This is the keto naturopath, right? So I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Oh, no, 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 no. But when people drop the carbs, which is basically down to 20 or less grams of carbohydrate per day for the classic ketogenic diet, what does that give them to eat? Some go way too far in the fat side of things. But let's say you've figured out not that much fat. Well, that then leaves protein. So assuming you're a whole food eater, what are your sources of protein? It's either fish, poultry, or meat. Meat being game, beef, lamb, you name it, right? So now your sources of protein contain a lot of choline, especially if you eat the organ meats. Now the back to the whole purine thing, right? Now it's like, whoa. So they talk about, oh no, it's, I went carnivore. I went carnivore and it changed my life. Maybe you went carnivore and increased your choline percent and that changed your life. Nobody wants to look at that. That's too simple. A third grader can understand that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You mean you didn't have to get so complicated with a keto? I think you have to drop drop all the refined carbohydrates, all that garbage food. You shouldn't be eating it anyway. So if you're thinking I drop my refined carbohydrates and I'm thinking you're dropping your garbage, then we're good, right? It's what I've always worked with people on without sort of saying, we're now going to drop gram by gram all your refined carbohydrates. I said, let's take the garbage out of your diet for just a couple months and see what happens. Shazam! I was not thinking in my 16 years of practice that it was choline that I was 
Now he's now shifting a person to have a choline-rich diet, but that's clearly what I did. The other factor is, and looking back over these since the mid-50s, the whole idea of you shouldn't have saturated fats, this is going to like go off into another uh, tangent. So you shouldn't have saturated fats. It was Ansel Keys and the whole seven countries studies. It was handpicked and so on and so forth. What it did was saying, no, you need to have polyunsaturated fats and therefore the, the Criscos and therefore the corn oils and the, and the soy uh, plant oils for cooking oils, vegetable oils, that's where they are, there's soy or corn, that that's a polyunsaturated. So people are now putting all that in over 70 years and they're not having what their parents used to have and their grandparents used to have, which was the tallow, or was the bacon grease, was the, um, the suet. Um, there you go. And lard. That was what I was thinking about. No, they're not going to, that's bad. Don't use any of that. <laughs> so they dropped all the saturated fats, which means they're probably not eating the things the saturated fats came from, which was the animal meats. Okay, then. So that was a very low choline advice. So now here's the introduction that uh, it deserves a little elaboration, probably in another podcast. And in going back, I've talked about MCT oil a lot, a lot. In fact, that for a couple of years, we had a product, MCT oil, and that was from, what, 2015 to 2018, I think. We still have bottles of it. So C8, it's called uh, seed MCT oil. So it's caprylic acid triglyceride. That's saturated fat. So what's been discovered back in the 70s, you know, this is research that nobody even looks at anymore. Back in the 70s is when they started thinking about how can they make the ketogenic diet for, epilepsy, for pediatric epilepsy more convenient, more, and so they, maybe if they added MCT oil, which they knew was highly ketogenic. So what does that mean? That means you put an MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, that either comes from coconut or palm, mostly palm, that you have that within 15 minutes, your liver, changes that into ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. So that's interesting. Within 15 minutes, a shazam. It's like instant ketosis. Absolutely, it's like instant ketosis. So that was in the 70s. They're saying, you know, maybe we can make it a convenient diet. Let's have, you know, put this on their meats and so on so they don't have to worry about adding gobs of fat. So it all got forgotten. But was also discovered in the 70s and then into the 80s a little bit before it really got forgotten and then rediscovered was that for alcoholic liver disease, fatty liver from too much alcohol, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, fatty liver from non-alcoholic reasons, choline deficiency, but push that aside, that MCT oil saturated fats were actually improve and restore the liver, improve and restore an alcoholic liver, fatty liver from alcoholic liver disease, and improve and restore a liver from non-alcoholic fatty, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver? Absolutely. Especially, especially, especially in combination with choline. So the person, more than likely, and this is basically useful information right now. So if somebody has had too much alcohol and you think that they've, especially your kids, they've been binge drinking or whoever else you're worried about, believe it or not, MCT oil is something you should have them have. You know, you know they don't guzzle it. 
uh, they'll have a they'll have heartburn if they do. But having that help their liver immediately within 15 minutes can create ketones. And from there, you have all these other benefits. But the idea is that MCT oil is the driver here. That totally changes the, there's four stages of, of cirrhosis, by the way, and eventually ends up with death, you know, and, or, or liver transplant. So as it begins to get more and more disease, if you're not at the last st- stage of fibrotic advanced cirrhosis, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic, you can bring it back. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. I had never thought of it in that context. And I happened to stumble across a number of studies that talk about MCT oil. So the idea of choline as a deficiency in MCT, specifically to treat the liver, and you know the number one liver disease that is really escalating, I thought I said there was Alzheimer's and dementia and you know, chronic disease and, and diabetes, it's um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there you go. Here's the solution. Does it get any easier? It's not real complicated. And the confirmation, and here's, let me go in the opposite direction. I talked about Ansel Keys, and I talked about don't have, he advocated don't have saturated fats, have the polyunsaturated fats. And um, we would have believed him if it wasn't for um, the two studies, the Minnesota Heart Study and the Sydney Diet Heart uh, Study being revealed and reanalyzed with all their data or realized actually those people who had more polyunsaturated fatty uh, fatty fats in their diet actually had higher cancer risks. So on that line of thinking and that kind of correction, what they found is that those who are having high polyunsaturated fats, primarily from corn oil, primarily linoleic acid, linolenic acid, I always pronounce that wrong, it's omega-6. And when they have too much of that, that becomes toxic. So that omega-6 with choline deficiency is absolutely a big causative factor for fatty liver, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Wow. Wow. So when we look at elevated uric acid saying, oh, it's insulin resistance. Well, that's partially true. So take the insulin resistance. And let's say if you just gave them choline, you would have reduced that considerably. If you then got rid of all the garbage food, call it refined carbohydrates. Absolutely. The grains and the starches out. Absolutely. That would be a huge, big deal. It's like, but choline as a separate big factor is something can be addressed almost immediately. And it's not real clever. You don't have to go out and look for some esoteric supplement. Um, phosphatidylcholine, start there. And most of the research, by the way, was always about phosphatidylcholine. It wasn't until the last five or 10 years that you get all these now different kinds of choline. Well, in the whole food world, the way that we lived at least 30 years ago before these things were uh, invented, and certainly our ancestors, they had lecithin that came through the food they eat because lecithin is the wrapping, if you will. It's the membrane wrapping along with its related fats, but it's still choline that is in every cell of animals. Every cell of animals in much less concentrated in plants. So consequently, that's where it came from, phosphatidylcholine, lecithin. I know you can get lecithin from, from sunflower and you can get lecithin from soy, but you also can get lecithin from the food that you eat. And that was the number one source. 
So it's pretty ordinary, absolutely ordinary. But it's extraordinary in the fact that we have a whole culture that has been deficient of that for, let's say, at least 70 years, since the 50s. So it's 50 plus 20, that's about 70 years. And you can go back before that. So back to men. Men have a higher need of choline, considerably higher need, 550 versus 425, except for women who are breastfeeding, right? Except for that time in their life. And that's now counting their SNPs. SNPs are a separate category of women, which is fascinating. Talked about that before. So here you go. They are the highest, and yet even at 550, it may not be high enough for some men. Men have their SNPs too, and it's not just about estrogen. Certainly that's going to be a little thing. They have other SNPs that their problems down the line is not so much in obesity and insulin resistance. That would be part of it. If they're if they need more and they're not getting what they need, they're going to be more inclined to have the problems that come up with choline deficiencies, which are insulin resistance, which are obesity and diabetes, which are dementia, which are Alzheimer's. But for the younger men, it's about infertility. It comes right down to sperm motility. Getting those guys to swim has a lot to do with choline. So however you want to look at it, uh, I want this to be a non-chart sort of presentation of information so you can just sort of hear this. We find that choline deficiency is so, so specific. It was very specific for women, especially the pre and post menopause, especially those who had the SNPs that made it so their estrogen was ineffective. They couldn't endogenously produce their own choline and consequently they were dependent on what they ate. But for the most part, Americans didn't know where choline came from. So they didn't know where to eat it or how to, how to eat it, if that's correct. Men are the same thing, but they had different SNPs in a different situation. They never had the leg up, if you will, of having times in one's life of elevated uh, estrogen. So they needed more to start with. And at least 20% as a running average, certainly from the study we've been talking about, that they were deficient. And so therefore they'd be showing the signs of choline deficiency, dysfunction of choline deficiency. Hope that's enough to keep you going. Talk more next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamp again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.